Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the After Hour Sessions podcast. This is your host, D-Rock. And today I am beyond pumped and excited because people may or may not know, but I'm someone who loves history, whether sports, pop culture, anything. I love talking about the history. And we have on an awesome guest who I've been able to hear on a lot of different podcasts. And I'm so thrilled that he's come on. We have on Dr. Connor Heffernan, a professor of kinesiology at Ulster University in Northern Ireland. I hope I said that. Okay. All right. I said that. Yeah, right. you got a thumbs up there. You nailed it. All right. All right. So, and he was with, which honestly, I, I have family who went to like, have been to Austin family in Texas. And I hear Austin's a great city, but I want to go and it's maybe it's a little weird, but actually, no, on this podcast, I know people get it. I want to see the Stark Center at Austin, Texas on, you know, uh, for physical culture and sports that Dr. Jan Todd and Terry Todd created. I want to go there and see it because I hear it's just so awesome to look at. And Connor worked there previously and now he's in Northern Ireland. So everyone, please welcome Dr. Connor Heffernan. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. Um, it's funny, I describe the Stark Center as like Aladdin's cave for for strength and fitness cultures. And, you know, <laughs> when you go in, there's like a 16-foot-tall, half-naked Hercules statue that revolves on a plinth, which wow. is funny because it's in a football stadium. So, you know, on like game day, you'll see people on the ground below looking up and just wondering like, why... Why is naked Hercules following me? Like, why are his eyes tracking me as I walk around the stadium? Um, so obviously there's more to the Stark Center than naked Hercules, but people's <laughs> first, first impression is the giant naked man. I think that is so cool. I think it's awesome. And um, my first question, honestly, is just it's about you is as someone who loves history in a good way, I'm a little jealous that you have such a cool job. How does one, I know you're a professor of kinesiology, but you're a strength historian. How did you kind of decide to go that route for your career? Um, I sort of fell on my ass until things worked out, would probably be the most accurate <laughs> uh, assumption. So it's, I had a strange sort of route. So I did history and um, political science as an undergraduate. I wasn't particularly good at history or political science. And I was coming up to, you know, my final year in university and I sort of, you know, just paddling in the water, so to speak. Right. And the history professor said to me, like, you know, what are you interested in? I was like, eh, I mean, I like working out. He's like, okay, go do that. Like, go figure out something. The history of working out was basically what he said. Like, go figure that out and come back to me with a project. 
So I did that. And then it was the first time I actually did well. So I was like, <laughs> I don't need to learn any new skills. I'm just going to keep squeezing the juice out of this lemon, do a master's in this, do a PhD in this, publish in this. So it, it all like serendipitous, serendipitously fell into place. Also, I had the help then of Professor Dan Todd, the late great Terry Todd, uh, like dozens and dozens of lecturers and professors who looked out for me and helped me along the way. Um, but I think the strangeness of what I was doing probably helped because I was always that person in the corner who does the strength stuff. So it was, it was easy to distinguish myself right, from, all, right. from all the normal people. <laughs> That's what this podcast is about, too. We like people the normal quote unquote normals look at as a strange but it's a community it's a community of strengths the community of being open with you know your kink your fetish your sexuality strength is beautiful in so many different ways and it's kind of leads to that segue of who we're talking about today the amazing katie sanduina mm, and right. you know because we talk with a lot of women who are strong and badass and not you know physically but also the vulnerability, the courage to kind of put themselves out there and go their own path. And I think, you know, just knowing what I know, but which is nowhere near what you know about her, but just knowing the bit I know, Katie Sanduina was that and kind of was a uh, a trailblazer for women and strength. Mm, I don't know. I mean, entirely. So obviously, like, uh, and I know you know this, but like, we're not going to pretend that the world is now a very welcoming and happy place for strong women, muscular women, um, women who don't fit into traditional societal roles. But it was even worse, you know, in the 19th century and the 1800s, which is when Katie Broomback, stage name Katie Sandrina, started to perform. So this is a German-born woman who's born in 1884. She is known as one of the strongest women of her generation, you know, she is billed as the strongest woman in the world. She lifts ineffably large weights. She is said to be able to lift 500 pounds with one finger, could press, you know, three or 400 pounds over her head. She could wrestle men and defeat men. She was reportedly anywhere from like five foot nine to six feet, six foot one. Like she was the quintessential strong woman. And like there were other strong women, strong women in the 1800s, 1900s. Um, Athlina, Volcana, Victorina, mm-hmm. Madame Yucca, like, you know, there's a host of strong women. But it was really Katie Sandrina who was, like, the famous one. Not right. to say that the others weren't famous, but she broke into pop culture in a way that the others didn't, you know. New York newspapers would cover her. They'd talk about her unusually large but extremely curvaceous figure. That She was one of the most beautiful women in the world as well as being one of the strongest women. So she managed to, like, tap into popular culture Mm-hmm. while still being sort of outside of popular culture because she was a strong woman who was also you know, tall and muscular and all of the things that people didn't expect a woman to be at that time. So, Connor, why do you think, because like you said, she's not like the first quote-unquote strong woman, but she is that first to kind of break through to the mainstream. What do you think it was about her that kind of broke through? Was it, was she a better self-promoter was it just timing or is there something about her that she broke through to like you said to kind of get pop culture to notice her and notice strong women it's a it's a really good question and it's one actually you know professor john todd has written about so if anyone's interested you know john todd and terry todd have written pretty much everything uh in this field (laughs) alongside dave chapman and uh john fair as well 
But Jan wrote a wonderful article in Iron Game History, which is a free journal that's available on the Star Center website called Katie Sandrina and the Construction of Celebrity. And one of the sort of breakout moments for Katie Sandrina comes in 1911. She's with New York with the Barnum and Bailey Circus, because obviously at that time, you know, we couldn't possibly have a, a strong woman as a legitimate athlete. They had to be in the circus, in the vaudeville theater, in the music hall because that was a more open and accepting space at that time. But right. so she's in New York, she's part of the circus. And just because of the like media savvy and strength of the circus at that time in America, which I feel like most people now they think of the American circus, they think of the greatest showman. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. no, it was a it was a much darker uh, past with very poor workers' rights. But we don't need to go into that. So you know, <laughs> P.T. Barnum and and co put her into contact with a number of different newspapers and they sort of build the mystique around Katie Sandrina in a way that probably wouldn't have happened um, elsewise. So there's a great article at the time written in the New York American, which was a sort of journal. It was a, a way for people to announce themselves. So I'm not really sure what the modern equivalent would be. It'd be, I suppose, an influencer suddenly promoting someone else. Oh, okay. I, I don't gotcha. know how, I don't know how kids do things, but you know, <laughs> One of these newspapers that or journals that, you know, they talk about, here's this new person who's come to New York. They're so amazing. They're so wonderful. We should all pay attention to them. And that would sort of build up their mystique or their celebrity in a really quick way. So Sandwina is covered by the New York American. And this sort of launches her reputation in the U.S. Like, and she will remain then within the U.S. sort of zeitgeist, you know, in, in pop culture from then until her death in the 1950s. Even though, you know, she travels back to Europe, we can talk about the fact that she gave birth during a war zone at a certain point. But this newspaper article is her, like, you know, coming out into society piece. And I think for your listeners, what's interesting is it celebrates her strength in in a way that one wouldn't expect from a mainstream article in 1911 America. The only caveat is it says... She's so, the main thing is she's so beautiful despite being so strong mm. um, rather than you know, joining those two things together. But it's progressive for its time. It's just right, really right. progressive. No, and I'm glad you said that because despite the fact that she did get, she broke through into mainstream culture, uh, I'm so glad you said it, is that you still hear like what you said, like, oh, she's beautiful in spite of the strength. Like yeah. it shows, like you said, how far we still had to go and that she was still fighting those things, even though she was getting praised and looked at and, but she was still fighting those awful stereotypes that women, we've made a lot of progress, but they still fight to this day when it comes to strength. And so I'm glad you made that point. Well, I think this is something that's common for strong and still common for strong women. Um, But, you know, when we get that first generation of strong women performers in the 1800s, if they were to be praised, it was always, they are so beautiful, you wouldn't expect it. Or, you know, given the strength of Minerva, one wouldn't expect her to have children. You know, like these sort of things is almost, they were acceptable if they fit into the, you know, the broader accepted roles, which we still see with sex and gender identity as well. It's you can almost, you know, you're almost permitted to have this alternative facet of your personality, as long as everything else fits neatly into the boxes 
as like long as you make the you know no offense but white men comfortable <laughs> it, it's okay pretty much <laughs> <laughs> oh no, yeah, no, listen, no offense. Uh, take most of my uh, lectures open with me being like, okay, so people like me, you know, white, heterosexual male, are going to be the bad guy in this story when we talk about women's sport, when we talk about LGBT, uh, uh, sorry, LGBTQIA plus stories, or, you know, whatever we're talking about. So it was very much because the people on your right side, you know, the people who controlled the circuses, the people who controlled the newspapers, the people who controlled any sort of commercial opportunities for Sandrina were conservative um conservative white men especially in the u.s right absolutely so now because like you said there's there's different reports you, i've i've you know in doing research seen anywhere from like you know five nine to like you said six foot and around like 200 pounds for her mm-hmm. build and i'm wondering if you if you know was she someone i knew she grew up in a family and there was they had she had some you know tall jeans in her family but was she into lifting or physical strength like growing up or was she kind of just naturally you know built this way so it's a it's a strange thing especially when you look at fitness cultures in the 1800s where it seems to be those two things really mashing together um so she was genet- most likely she was genetically predisposed to strength especially because you know her father performed in the circus her mother was known to be a strength performer as well her mother was johanna her father was philippe they were Mm -hmm. both known as circus uh, strength performers they then had katie and her six or her 15 siblings the parents had 16 children which wow i have one nine month old and i'm struggling so i I just honestly don't understand how 15 uh added (laughs) to that but you know so she comes from strong parents who are literally strength performers but then they also have her and her siblings performing at a very early age so we have evidence that from the age of two she was part of her parents strength routines so she used to do a handstand on her father's hand so her dad would stick out his hand and this two-year-old would do a handstand on it which wow like come on that's amazing Um, (laughs) yeah genetically predisposed plus you know, being you know, exposed to strength and training for such a young time. And then by the time she became a teenager, you know, she was one of the star attractions of her dad's circus in Germany. So like this really all fit in together with a genetic, with who was someone who was likely predisposed to being big and strong and muscular. Absolutely. That's a, two years old doing a handstand. I mean, I tried to learn, like, you know, I'm 31. I spent two years trying to figure out how to do a handstand. I just gave up. I was like, it's yeah. my shoulders. I was like, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I remember, like, when I was, like, five, six, seven, doing a cartwheel kind of, I was like, that's all I got. <laughs> you know, that's all I can do. Like, that's that's done, my I've limit. Done <laughs> I've done it. I'm done. And people are like, do it again. I go, no, one time. That's that's all I got. I got lucky. But, like, <laughs> two years old doing, like, that's amazing. So that's, yeah, that is, like you said, it's both. It's it's that practice, that training, but it is like it's a genetic thing too, which a lot of times is the case for most of the most people. Like, mm-hmm. and it's what we find with other female strong women from that time. They tended to not always, but they tended to come from a circus background, or they tended to have one one parent, more than likely a father, who was a strength performer or a circus performer or an athlete. It was very rare for a strength performer at that time to sort of come from nowhere. And part of the reason for that is like, A, in the 1800s, we didn't really have gyms the way we have them now. Like mm-hmm. there wasn't a 24-hour fitness, you know, on every corner. But B, 
the small gym cultures which existed tended not to be open spaces for women. And again, Jan Todd has written quite extensively about this, so has the late Roberta Park, that training for women in the 1800s tended to be, surprisingly, very misogynistic. So it would be, you know, women are frail, they're delicate, they're weak. We can't, we couldn't possibly have them lift heavy weights because this would overtax them. This would prove too much for them, they'd injure themselves. So we'll just get them to do like, you know, calisthenics, like touching their toes, touching their knees, stretching out their arms. So if a woman wants to get involved in like lifting heavy stuff, it could only really come if you're in that space, you know, of the circus or of a strength performer, because the like general society was not going to allow anything like that. Right. Wow. Um, And it's amazing that, you know, going through that adversity, that discrimination, all all those, you know, saying Katie Mm -hmm. and and like you said, the women before her and even after her, like you you give credit to that courage to keep persevering and to fight that. Um, A random question I do have for you, and maybe tough, but I know you, you also have a, you've competed and, 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 bodybuilding I don't, have you done strongman as well or i mean i've lifted heavy things right, strong, okay. strongman have laughed at me so no. <laughs> no you're better than me you're you're better than me so i i commend you and i know like the the eras are different and the technology mm-hmm. is different but knowing what you know about like those circus performers do you think that how do you think that would translate into strongman competitions or you know either powerlifting bodybuilding any of them do you think like that would be like if they had back then or if now sir because the circus really isn't big now but if someone was a circus performer like a strength performer in the circus could they translate pretty easily into a strength sport or do you think they kind of have to start at square one so if I had a magic wand and was dictator for the day, I would make strongmen and strongwoman competitions go back to the circus shows because they just seem a lot more fun, for want yeah. of a better phrase. So, you know, Katie Sandwina, when she was performing in 1911 with the Barnum and Bailey Circus, she would support a 600-pound cannon on her shoulder and walk across the stage. She would lift barbells. She pushed 286 pounds overhead. Um, and that record actually stood until the 1970s when Karen Marshall, one of the early Olympic weightlifters in America, you know, bested that record. So, I mean, we're starting to see like there was a huge, uh, like Karen is a, a topic for a different day. She's an amazing woman um, mm. in her own right. But then, you know, Katie Sandrina would also resist the pull of horses. As I already said, she could lift 500 pounds with one finger reportedly. Like, I think it would be terrifying to see what these people could do in the modern age with scientific training with more access to equipment with access to anabolic steroids because obviously that's a part of the modern age as well like it's sort of terrifying to see how strong these people were at a time when like if we're being honest they were sort of making it up as they went along you know like, yeah can, can you lift a cannon in, on stage yeah sure i'll give it a try can you lift a horse overhead with one hand why not what could go wrong um so <laughs> They probably wouldn't find it as fun is the only thing because now we're quite boring when it comes to training. Like I can't remember the last time I saw someone lift a horse overhead at one hand in my gym. And maybe that's yeah. just, maybe that's the gym that I go to. But we that's just me like, too. Yeah. yeah, so there you go. We're too vanilla, I think is the problem. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> that's the thing too, Connor. I um I think it's just us. We're not picking the right gyms. I'm sure there's 
plenty of gyms where they're just lifting horses overhead and just <laughs> lifting up cannons. It's it's what we're doing the wrong thing. We're not finding them. They're out there. <laughs> but, you know, there was a sweet spot during the pandemic when all the gyms closed down and people had to figure out how to lift heavy things. I think that if we're ever going to go back to that age, it was going to happen during the lockdowns. And I just we weren't creative enough. That's no. what it's funny. Um, I, you know, at the time when the pandemic first hit, I had a different job. I was running um, like, you know, group therapy and I had mm-hmm. a couple of patients, you know, we were doing it over Zoom and a couple of them were actually they were like strong men and stuff. And they were struggling to find creative because the gyms were closed. And then I'm honestly because I'm the counselor. I'm and I can admit I wasn't the most I, I was Googling and trying to tell them. You know, yeah. here, try this, try that. Use the items you have. You already, you had these items in your house. You can do it. But they, without like having the actual gym and just the dumbbells and the, the bench prep, they were just like struggling. So you're right. That creativity is shot today. Yeah. And I, you know, interestingly, this is some, so I studied primarily the 1800s and early 1900s because it's so fascinating. But the issue they had back then is, you know, it was hard to get access to dumbbells. It was hard to get access to barbells. If you were doing a circus show, people didn't really want to see a dumbbell or a barbell, mainly because they didn't really know what that was. You know, like, right. they didn't have access to dumbbells or barbells. So if I've never seen a dumbbell and someone says, oh, this weighs 500 pounds and pushes overhead, I'm going to be like, okay, like, cool. That's neat, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But if they're like, I'm going to carry a cannon, you're like, oh, that's he- I know what that is. That's heavy. Or I'm going to lift a safe. You're like, oh, that's heavy. I know what that is. So because they didn't have all the equipment, they had to be super creative to show off how heavy something was. Whereas now we have all of the equipment and then we're like, I'm stuck. What do I, yeah. what do, I do when these two things are gone? And that's not to minimize you know, how hard that obviously was for people, but it is kind of funny when we've gone completely in the other direction. Yeah, you know, you have me thinking like, I grew up loving strength, loving watching on ESPN, the world's strongest man, and world's strongest women competitions. And I would look at, you know, the pat the history with John mm-hmm. Paul Samuelson and Jeff Capes. And then even to now seeing like, you know, these guys and they're pulling playing. And I thought that's incredible. But compared to the circus show, it's like, come on, ESPN, world's strongest man, step it up here. We got a long way to go. We can we got to make this more entertaining now that I'm talking with you. I'm like, I thought I was amazed watching that. And I'm not minimizing those guys are amazing, but I'm like, step up the entertainment value here people so the only caveat to that is the first world strongest man show which was hosted in 1977 and you, you probably know the story but just for people who are listening who maybe don't they mm-hmm. tried to do the like circus style entertainment so you know they bend steel bars over their head one of the things they're like oh we'll strap a refrigerator to people's backs and get them to sprint oh. which yeah that face is was probably what they needed in that meeting. You know, we're like, ooh, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Long long story short, strapping a heavy weight on someone's back and getting them to sprint is a recipe for disaster. One of the bodybuilders who was competing uh, broke his leg and pretty much curtailed his bodybuilding career because they didn't think it out. So, I mean, if we we get, like, a medium ground between, like, reckless free-for-all and sort (laughs) of the, like, safe, sanitized versions that we have now, I just feel somewhere in the middle would probably... I agree. Yeah, there you go. I Everyone agree. stay safe. That's the main thing. But also, absolutely, absolutely, oh. absolutely. We, de- we definitely don't want any broken legs or, you know, near death experiences. You know, that's we don't want that for anyone. But it's just, I'm with you though. It's just amazing 
to hear those stories. Um, what's what's interesting also is the name Sanduina, mm. and you know there was the famous strongman Eugene Sandow, who was very popular, and I think I could be wrong, but you know the story was that she bested. Katie bested Eugene Sandow in a lifting competition is how she got the name, like, quote unquote. But I'm here. I'm thinking maybe that might there might be some myth to that. I'm not sure. But. So I run a website. This is going to be a short story long. I run a website um, called Physical Culture Study, which I've been writing since 2014 with. You know, I finished my undergrad. I went straight into writing that. And at one point I wrote. Katie Sandrina, because I found this story on the internet and thought it was a great story, so I wrote Katie Sandrina got her nickname from beating Eugene Sandow uh, in a weightlifting competition. And then I read around it a little bit more, realized that that story is an amazing story, but it's not actually true. And then I forgot to take down the post. And then Jan Todd keeps asking me where I got that information from. And I was like, I don't know. And so I'm going to... So that story, so the story is that Eugene Sandow, who was, he's seen by many as like the first modern bodybuilder, the first fitness influencer. He traveled around Europe, the United States, Asia, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, promoting health and fitness. He was the personal trainer to the British monarch in, 19, in 1911. A big deal. Um, so the story is that Katie Sandrina was doing a show and Sandow was in the audience and he challenged her to a weightlifting contest. And, you know, they started lifting barbells overhead and over time or over the course of the night, Sandrina lifted more weights than him, hence getting the name Sandrina, which I think is a great story right. because it seems a little bit like um, a Highlander. You know, there can only be one, like she defeats him and now she gets <laughs> But we actually don't know um, how, when or why she got her nickname. We do know that the Sandow story isn't true. Obviously, Sandwina, because her name is Katie Broomback. Like, obviously, Sandwina is an allusion to Eugene Sandow. Right. We just don't have any evidence that the two crossed over. But she certainly plays on the fact that Sandow is seen as you know, the most perfectly developed uh, man. In 1904, the National History Museum of London creates a bust of his body to show future generations the perfect white specimen, which wow. is a whole different kettle of fish that's problematic. So Sandrine is obviously promoting herself as like the female equivalent to Eugene Sandow, because even like her billing in the circus is often the strongest and most beautiful woman in the world. And Sandow would be the strongest and most perfectly developed man in the world. So like, right, right. Her career is mimic. So that's, you know, what I'm hearing from you and if I'm wrong, correct me, but the circus, her circus background growing up, not only did it help her, with you know a training for strength but what i'm getting is she had a knack for which is what we see today like you mentioned influencer uh, influencer she had a knack for self-promotion and she mm-hmm. had that that great business eye that great you know promotional eye to promote herself because that is genius to and i don't know who exactly but to create to hitch to sandow's name but then to have this story to create this lore that has gone on for a century you know people still will i've seen i was looking up researching this and i you know i knew to go to like jan todd your articles but like people will still other articles other podcasts 
will talk about how she lifted Sandow. And they're not saying like wink, wink or anything. They're just saying it like it's fact. And it's over a century later, you know? Yeah, and I think you're so right to pick out the self-promotion because something she does really well as you know, alongside the sort of Sandow um, caricature is she really plays on the fact that she's a strong woman. So what I mean by this is she's doing weightlifting in the circus, but she's also challenging men to wrestling matches mm. in the circus. And this is something that her father initially did. The story is that he'd offer 100 Deutschmarks to anyone who could beat her in a wrestling match. According to legend, legend, pardon me, no one ever defeated her in a wrestling match. But there's the bigger story, which is often talked about in the US, is that she met her future husband, Max Heyman, when he accepted her father's wrestling challenge. And I actually have the quote here um, from when I was preparing uh, for this. It says, from Max's recollections, as I entered the ring, I began thinking that if I won 100 Deutschmarks, it'd be the most extravagant way to earn money. Instead, the thing I recollect is a sudden rotation in the air with the flashing blue sky in my eyes and free-falling. In the end, I found myself on the mat panting and semi-conscious while the girl bent down to say, have I inflicted any damage to you? Next, she grabbed me in her arms like a dummy and carried me to her tent. So he didn't win, but he got a wife in the process, which is a wonderfully romantic story. That's way better. That's way better. Much better. But to your point about self-promotion, like obviously there's something dangerous, there's a mystique, there's something interesting to a woman who can beat up men or a woman who can wrestle with men. And like a lot of her self-promotion was around this idea of being a subversive woman, you know, being being someone who could defeat men, take on men, um, best men. Even in her promotional photos with her husband, Max, it was always Katie towering over Max. You know, so they made a point of showing the sort of Amazonian, if that's a word, star woman. So again, playing on the curiosity that that would Right. That would that would create in the American sort of psyche. Yeah, and that's the right. She she knew how to get into that American male psyche and and see that there is there I guess always has been that mystique about yeah that that strong woman and mm-hmm. who can beat up men and and I think it's awesome because it's breaking. I love when anybody like you talked about whether what the gender your your sexual orientation you're you're being yourself and breaking down those stereotypes and saying, screw that. It's awesome. And it is, it's inspiring. And I think it's really cool. Like, like, you know, just to be, and I kind I guess I want to ask this. Do you think she had when any like wrestling training or was it just did her dad maybe teach her some tricks of the trade or like, what do you think it was about her? Like that would made her such a great grappler. It's, it's an interesting one because, again, she's not the only um, female wrestler who exists and she's not the only female um, like, uh, pugilist or prize fighter that exists. There's a wonderful book by Melissa Smith about the history of women's boxing, which goes back to the 1800s, if not to the 1700s, oh, wow. 1600s, which is a great book for anyone who's interested. I think it's just called The History of Women's Boxing, um, Melissa Smith. We don't know where she got any sort of wrestling training like it is likely that her father and mother were training her from a young age because if she was part of their strength routines from the age of two it's likely that they were training her because at that time you know strength athletes or weightlifters were often also wrestlers so mm-hmm. Eugene Sandow who we mentioned he was a wrestler before making it big as effectively a muscle poser others like Bernard McFadden, same thing, wrestler, then physical culturist. So the two sort of 
worlds weren't separated at that point. Even like George, I believe George Hackenschmidt, right? Was he? So yeah, that, that's such a famous example, which I've completely yeah. missed. Uh, George Hackenschmidt, who's obviously, he's beaten by Frank Gotch twice, the American wrestler, under somewhat contentious circumstances, depending if you're right. European or American. Um, he's a very famous example of a weightlifter who's a physical culturist, who's also obviously a wonderful wrestler. There's also Indian um, physical culturists slash wrestlers like Gam the Great, uh, Bhutan Singh, um, I'm trying to remember there's another individual as well, but you know, the, the two worlds are often uh, joined at the hip. Which is, I think, you know, someone who loves mixed wrestling, session wrestling, mm-hmm. kink wrestling, it's cool to see because I feel like in mainstream that kind of has gone away and I could be wrong, but like, it's like now they're two separate. Like if you're a wrestler or a grappler, you're over here. If you're in the strength, you're over here. But in the the session wrestling, mixed wrestling world, they're often that's a place where you find that it's still combined. It's still a lot of people are strength and strong and maybe a body built, but also others have a, a, a somewhat of a wrestling background or grappling background, too. So it, it kind of has gone away a little bit, I feel. It's funny, yeah. I was actually oddly having this conversation um, sort of serendipitously with David Chapman a couple of weeks ago. So David Chapman published a great book called Venus with Biceps, which is like a history of strong women. And it's an amazing, like, just um, photograph book. Because there's a lot of history that, like, it's David Chapman. So it's all very well-researched history, but also the photos are amazing. And he has some wonderful um, history books that are just these incredible photo albums as well. There's another one about Adonis, like male uh, cover cover images. We were talking about and something that interested him when he started researching Venus with biceps is female bodybuilders obviously make a living. Not all of them, but some have historically made a living wrestling male fans, you know, in various different ways. But that's never talked about openly, really, in official bodybuilding circles. So it's interesting that that history and lineage still exists, but obviously it's been pushed into... The, the margins or you know pushed into the background and yeah. for some female bodybuilders it was how they actually made their money more so than you know being being a bodybuilder it was actually being a private wrestler for want of a better phrase and that as people who know this podcast know and it's a big reason why i helped to start it is uh mm-hmm. it's it's gotten pushed into this niche background and a lot of people don't know how popular it still really is, but it's kind of in the underground and talking to a lot of wanting to have conversations and people, because as someone who, you know, participates in session wrestling, I was having these conversations like with these session wrestlers about how you got into this path. Cause I think it's just fascinating, not just as a fan, but just, it's so awesome that they're doing it. And so it was, it's kind of why I started it to kind of bring these conversations to people and really help people to truly understand what mm-hmm. this really is. And it's fascinating because if you think about it, you know, it was what so many female strong women did as a public spectacle in the 1800s. And then obviously from a wrestling perspective, like it's interesting to me, intergender matches have sort of fallen away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the two rounds where these things were done in the open have tended to fall away depending on um, you know, the wrestling franchise. So WWE has historically done very few intergender matches, especially in the last 30 years. Actually, somewhere where I'm, so I'm in the Republic of Ireland slash Northern Ireland, over the top wrestling, 
does mm-hmm. intergender matches and there's an amazing wrestler called Session Mott, uh, Martina who I think she lost the intergender belt uh, the last event that I was at but it's it's funny depending on the wrestling company or franchise they either do incorporate it or don't incorporate it I feel like in North America it tends to be quite taboo it in, is in mainstream wrestling which is so fascinating because obviously in Britain and Ireland it's a much more open space right right no um in mainstream in North America with WWE, which is the big company, mm-hmm. um, you really just had you know back in the Attitude Era, China, she kind of yeah. was doing it, but then it kind of felt like it went backwards a little bit. You had like Trish Stratus and and Lita, but then it kind of went to the the quote unquote diva era for so long, and it was just really just about like the sex appeal, and it was really terrible because there's a lot of athletic women who weren't being able to showcase their abilities. And then finally it has to be within not even 10 years ago under that, like they started having, you know, the women's division be like, Hey, these are superstars. These are great Mm -hmm. athletes. Let them compete. And to me, honestly, I love watching the women's division more than I do the men's division in WWE. I think it's better. So it's still a long way to go, but that was just probably 2015, 2016, they stop yeah, calling the women divas. I love that. Where they're like, it's the women's revolution. It's like, we're not calling them divas anymore. It's like, do you understand what a revolution Right, is? right, right. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's interesting because obviously on the indies, intergender wrestling tends to happen um, to a certain extent. Lucha Underground did some amazing intergender stuff, but obviously Lucha Underground is its own uh, sort of distinct universe. But I think there is something to that where in bodybuilding, it's in hushed tones. They refer to the men um, historically as schmoes, so it's sort of derogatory towards uh, the male fans to a certain extent. And then in mainstream wrestling, intergender wrestling, if it does happen, it's usually a woman on the side of the apron. One of the men will bump into her. She'll fall, take a fall, and now he's the evil one because he's hit a woman. Um, so I'm sorry, that's not to say that that's uh, not no, I got you. outside of wrestling. But you know what I mean? It's, they use the women as objects to show how evil a villain is rather than showing them as legitimate athletes. So I think the mm-hmm. how it's been pushed out of the mainstream in the two camps where it's historically been is quite interesting and leads it then to being a subculture rather than just another tangent of what these admittedly subculture like wrestling and bodybuilding are subcultures right. it's inception. It's subculture on subculture on subculture. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I want to go back to, because I, I didn't forget it, what you said earlier, especially since you you brought up Max. So you brought up the fact, I think their son's name was Theodore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she, right. she, she gave birth, which I have no idea about. She gave birth to him, you said, in a war zone? So the story is that Katie Sandrina and her family were living in Europe during um, the First World War, which obviously 1914 to 1918. For the life of me, I can't remember which country they're in, which being a historian is probably not a good look for me if I'm like, I can't remember the fact that I told you about. But no, they're, no. In, they're in Europe uh, during the First World War. The story goes that, you know, as it must have been Russian troops were coming across Europe, she was heavily pregnant at the time. And as she's escaping the oncoming troops, she gives birth to one of her children. And like so the story itself is true that she gave birth during a war zone. And it's one of these incredible instances of just, I suppose, what life was like for people in 
the early 1900s because this was a fact of life you know these terrible wars ravaging across europe so yeah she gave she gave birth in a war zone escaping uh fleeing troops or oncoming troops and the son turned out to be you know, a very respectable boxer with seemingly very well adjusted so yeah I, I wouldn't say it's a common route i wouldn't say it's an advisable route but it certainly didn't work out too badly for them no and i think that's what uh one thing of this podcast like that i've i've done over the past two years and it, katie sandwin is a great example is um people go that you go go your own path and go your own <laughs> journey and it, it not saying it's advisable to be in a war zone but like she she went to her path she went she went to the beat of her own drum and i always respect anybody who does that so that's that it doesn't honestly for most people it probably would but hearing about katie and her story nothing surprises me so it's kind of like of course she would like Why you know I, i'm just waiting for like surprising not stories of like you know and she caught a bullet and threw it away <laughs> you know because like the myth is just so great but uh, but it's amazing um i gotta be honest like and i'm gonna put myself out here as a nerd but i'm proud of it but a history nerd and i love it so where I first, you know, this is what I would do on Friday and Saturday nights. Like, yeah, I'll be honest. Is you go on that, you get in that a deep dive into something. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of went on a deep dive into the suffrage movement. And that is honestly where I first heard about Katie Sanduina. Honestly, it wasn't being a fan of the history of strong men and strong women. It was through the suffrage movement, which, you know, back in the early 20th century, like a real first big wave of like a feminist movement. And she was a big symbol of that and really popular. So she was also progressive in that time of like pushing women's rights forward too and being a symbol of that. I know completely. And I mean, it's one of those things that someone doesn't need to be overtly involved in a political movement to still be a political figure or to still mm -hmm. make a political statement. Um, which is something that people forget at times, I think. So, yes, yeah, being out in public, being this subversive character who's still also able to normalize things. Because I know we talked about the fact that, you know, the newspaper articles and media articles often said, oh, she's so beautiful despite being strong, but she's still strong and in mm. the public sphere. So, there was a sense of her being a feminist icon without being involved in the suffrage movement because she was opening out a new space for strong women because, you know, you have people who come after Katie Sandrina and they, they can say, oh, I'm going to challenge Katie Sandrina's record or I'm going to beat her record or I'm the next Sandrina or people at least would say she's like Sandrina. So it normalizes even to a small extent strong, muscular, athletic women in that public sphere at a time when if women played sport, it tended to be neglected or it tended to be understudied or underreported, or more often than not, it tended to be quite tame, where they would have them wear very stiff dresses or, you know, they couldn't play with the same rules that men played at. So to have a strong woman out there who's beating men in wrestling matches, you know, lifting ineffably heavy weights, um, being, you know, celebrated for doing these things and creating a sort of brand so that the next strong woman who comes along is oh, she's like Sandrina, or we have a point of comparison. So maybe the barriers aren't, they're still high, but they're not necessarily as high as what they were. I think that's right. why for many people she is seen as that feminist icon. And certainly within you know the strength community writ large, 
she is seen as like an OG figure. Yes. You know, that women take inspiration from. Certainly Jan Todd, who aside from being a wonderful historian, was a wonderful powerlifter. You know, Jan Todd was inspired by stories of Katie Sundarina to you know, 20 years after Sundarina had died, or Sandrina inspired Pudgy Stockton, who inspired, say, Jan Todd, who inspired some of the current generation of female powerlifters and strong women. So, like, for many, she's that, like, starting point on a journey of strength and muscularity. Which is just incredible. And, and like you said, it's, it's, it's always interesting because always a lot of times when we say this person was the first, is if you do, and that's why I love history and talking to historians like yourself, because if you do research, there usually was somebody else who was first, but you still give credit to that person because they took it and ran with it and put it on that platform for everyone. And they took that to another level. And I think that's why I think it is, like you said earlier, we can name there's people if you look at it who were before, but she really is the OG because without her, we do we have Jan Todd being on Johnny Carson and, and being able to, you know, deadlift so much. Or I believe her name is is it Jan Rhodes? If I'm saying that oh, right. Joan, Joan Rhodes. Joan Rhodes, yeah. who um I have her book in my basement, but like that's what I also heard about Sanduino's, like her being on national TV with Bob Hope and lifting mm-hmm. Bob Hope. And I know she dropped Bob Hope one time. <laughs> But um, we'll let us go by that. But she was popular in the 1950s and and kind of, you know, ripping up telephone books. And and she gives a nod to Sanduina. So it's like, yeah, all these people, even now to today, we can look back at Sanduina as that, like you said, OG figure. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. And, you know, for listeners, I suppose such an interesting point of interest is an interesting point of interest. Anyway, uh, an interesting <laughs> point of interest. It's interesting, I swear is the fact that Sandrina and her sort of marketing around Sandrina very astutely managed to take the thing that should have, as was prevented her from entering into popular culture and marketed it and played with it and was creative with it to the extent that she became famous for the thing that actually should have, you know, been the reason why people didn't want to talk to her or people didn't want to look at her or people didn't want to promote her. And I think it's interesting that there are interesting ways of, again, I'm stuck on interesting, breaking into the mainstream with things that can be alternative or things that can be seen as a subculture or perhaps subversive to what's traditionally seen. And I think in 2022 with social media, it's, there are more, I wouldn't say it's easier, but there are more routes for niche things to break into the mainstream. And it's just so fascinating to see how a woman did this in the 1880s when the main outlets were newspapers, magazines, and the posters that you did for your shows. So like it's such a small tool set to break into the mainstream is absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. And I, and I think um, that, that needs to be said, like just obviously the, the, the innovation and the trailblazing as far as being a strong woman, but as far as being a feminist icon trailblazing, Mm -hmm. as far as being a businesswoman and a self promoter and knowing like, Hey, striking, you know, I'm looking at pictures of her now and like striking the right pose and how to show the muscle, but yet show off her figure. And like you said earlier, you know, I, I believe her husband was probably like five, six, five, seven, mm-hmm. which isn't, you know, if she's five, 10, let's say five, 10, five, 11, he's shorter, but it's not like he's a foot shorter than her. 
but those pictures and posters would make it seem like he's just so tiny compared to her, like in every way, like, but that was smart kind of advertising. Oh yeah. And I mean, you know, this happens across our life. So in the later parts of her life, you know, in the 1940s and 1930s, her and Max buy a tavern in New York and the running story when newspapers come to cover the tavern is that Katie Cinderina pulls, you know, pulls the drinks behind the bar and is also the, the bouncer, you know, the security in the bar. So there's really cool photos from newspapers of like Katie Cinderina grabbing a man by the scruff of the neck and the seat of his pants and throwing him out the door of the bar. Right. And it's usually Max in those photos. So like they, they still wonderfully play on this idea of like the, you know, Amazonian strong woman who is, is able to do what people didn't think was possible. That's amazing. That's so awesome. And, and there is that, it, it, and I see it now doing podcast, like it, it, there is like, you, you want to do good work, but to get noticed, you have to know how to hit that. And it's like mm-hmm. a combination of the idea, the innovative way to break through, but also timing. And I think it's huge that like she had the right timing. She knew, you know, she's in the right era at that right time to kind of send it forward. So it's just amazing. Um, my final question for you is, um, and if, if you think, if you disagree, that's a fine too. Um, why do you feel like, or no, if you do feel this way, I shouldn't say why, cause I don't know if you do feel this way, but in my opinion, she's not talked about enough for all those things. Like, you know, for being and and she was in the 20th century, like, mm-hmm. you know, so like, it's not like it's 1776 or something. So why do you think like, she's not talked about more as, this icon for strength and the, the way to move forward. Because to me, even in strength and combat sports, people looked at Ronda Rousey like, oh my goodness, she's she's a fighter and, and she's pretty. And it was like, man, we're still so ignorant and stupid. And this is in the 2010s, people are saying that. And then like for what she did, like for not being so vocal, but in a way, you know, actions are a lot louder than words being great for the feminist movement, that suffrage movement, no one really talks about what she did. And she, I think, should be talked about as one of the great women of the 20th century more. But you don't hear her, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think that's a brilliant point. I think there's a couple of things at play. One is, um, obviously, just the paucity or the lack of research that's done on, historically has been done on women's history, especially then when it comes to like sport, and physical culture or weightlifting which is an even more niche uh, world than sort of mainstream histories. The second is, it's only in the last, obviously Jan Todd and Terry Todd and Kim Beckwith and a number of other people have been you know, beating the drum for the study of strong men and strong women. Uh, Dave Chapman, who I mentioned, John Fair and many others. But it's only in mainstream cultures in the last 10, 15 years or so that we're starting to get popular books on strong women. So this is a great um, book called Strong Like Her, I, I, it's, I can't remember the woman's first name. Haley is her surname, H-A-L-E-Y. But this is like, you know, a, a biography of all these strong women from different fields, you know, be it weightlifting, be it gymnastics, be it CrossFit, be it swimming. But there are a number of people who have, or I've been in contact with, are in the process of writing biographies of strong women or writing books on strong women. And there seems to be more of an appetite now because more women are doing CrossFit, powerlifting, weightlifting, 
um, strength events, like the you know strongest woman style events. And I think they're much like Jan Todd experience when she started lifting weights, much like Karen Marshall experience when she went to break Sandrina's record. When you become interested in it, a significant portion of those people will want to know where they've come from. You know, so right. who were the strong women of previous eras? And I think that's why we're starting to see more of an interest in Pudgy Stockton in Sandrina in say a John Todd or a Judy Lenny or a Karen Marshall. And it's because we're getting more of that interest, you're starting to see like mainstream recognition. So the Arnold Strength Festival, they now hold a Katie Sandrina trophy, you know, for their strong women championships. So even that is very significant because, you know, much in the same way that the WWE uh, had a Divas title, like the strongest woman events was just the strongest woman, whereas now we're saying there's like a Sandrina trophy. It's not just an Arnold strength trophy, it's the Sandrina trophy. So it's forcing people to like really engage with their history. So I think, yes, she has been neglected, but we're starting to get that interest built up now and that recognition of history. So for me, it's really exciting, you know, as a fan of uh, strength competitions, powerlifting, weightlifting, whatever the case is, but then also as a historian, because people are actually consuming the history. And actually on that, as a final point, Rogue Fitness has done a really great documentary on Katie mm-hmm. Sabrina that's available for free on YouTube. And Rogue was obviously involved in the Arnold Strength Classic, which named the Katie Sabrina Trophy. So Rogue's partnership with the Arnold, or with the Arnold, but then also with the Stark Center, is helping to popularize that story as well. This is great because I knew I, I've heard you on other podcasts and I was excited to talk to you. But not only that, you gave me hope just now. Like, okay, like we're starting to, you know, so I feel you, we're, you're making me like, it was. I was excited and happy talking with you. But now I'm like, oh, there's hope as someone who loves history too. I'm like, yeah, all right. And, and I'm glad you also said it because I was going to like that documentary on YouTube on, from Rogue Fitness on Sanduina. It, it's awesome for people. It's not, I, I'm someone I can deep dive. So I love if it's long. As long as it's interesting, I'm in. But for people, it's probably like 35 minutes, 30, 35 minutes. It's not it's too like long. It's like 35 minutes. Um, put it this way, I don't know how, but my wife doesn't really have an interest in any of this, uh, despite me talking with her about it a lot. Um, but she sat down and watched it. Like, it's high production values. It's interesting. It's you know, great. It's a, it's a good story, even if one isn't uh, a history nerd, for want of a better phrase. No, and I love that one. I love the one that they did on... You know, it's really on the late great who you knew, Terry Todd, but mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of on both of them, Terry and Jan Todd, because they're intertwined. I feel like they're in how much they've done for, you know, strength community. They've just immensely helped um, so much. So that that was also a great one. I want people who are listening to go on Rogue on Fitness on YouTube and watch theirs as well. Oh, yeah, like there's a, there's the Terry Todd one, which is really just a love letter to strength uh, in so many ways. There's one on Eugene Sandow, on Apollon, a wonderful French weightlifter and strongman, on Arthur Saxon. They have documentaries on stone lifting in the Basque region in Iceland and Scotland. I'm going to stop talking because I now sound like a rogue shrill or shill, which I'm not. But if they want to send me free gear. Same here. I'm, yeah, I'm OK with that. I, yes, you know. yes. Cause I, 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 I want more, honestly, I kind of, I, I follow them on YouTube, honestly, now, cause I want to see more of these documentaries. Cause they are, like you said, this, the topic's fascinating for, you know, guys like you and I, but even if you're not into it, the production value, the storytelling, 
I think will have you hooked, even if you're kind of like uh, on the fence. Like you said, your wife was very hooked on the Sandow story. Mm-hmm. I, I think they, they do a great job. And I, I kind of hope that they have more coming down the pike because uh, a guy like me, I, I devoured them in a day. I just went through them all like and I'm kind of was like, that's it. But uh, <laughs> they I they know. are all awesome. spirits. Yes, yes, yes. And this is great because I love to read and the books. I've written all them down because you better believe when we get off of here, I'm heading right to Amazon and I'm getting all these books and, I, and I'll tag you on Twitter when I get them here because um, awesome. this is awesome. Like there's and I this books that I didn't know were out like, you know. I had the Joan Rhodes one, but I love to read. I love to go deeper into it. So I'm going to get all these and, and I'm kidding the candy store. I apologize to your wallet in advance. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Um, Connor, thank you so much for coming on and joining me and educating me and all the listeners about Katie Sanduina, about strength and how far we've come with women's strength and also how far we have to go and still have to go with it. Um, this has been an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you. No, listen, thanks for having me on. I said, I love to chat shop. Um, so uh, listen, this has been great. I said, I listened to a couple of podcasts um, before coming on. So you've now got another listener. Um, which oh, is cool. Always good to hear. Um, yes. But yeah, listen, absolute pleasure. I'm really thankful you asked me on. Absolutely, man. No, thank you. That means a lot. And, um, I love to have you because after reading these books and some of the other figures you've you've named, I'd love to uh, in the future talk with you about them and 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 go deep dive into it. So this has been awesome, man. So no, thank sure. you. Don't be a stranger. Absolutely. So for the amazing Dr. Connor Heffernan, and and well, real quick, Connor, where can people find your work or follow you? You know. I'm dreadful. We're just after talking about self-promotion. Um, I'm dreadful <laughs> at it. So, yeah, Me so, too. <laughs> um, so I have my own website, Physical Culture Study, that has you know the history of fitness, bodybuilding, weightlifting, and so many different uh, articles. I'm a regular contributor to barbend.com. So there's a lot of history articles on there. Um, you'll see I have my own podcast. It's a history of Irish football podcast, so I don't expect anyone uh, to listen to it. It's called The Boys We've Seen, but they're probably the three major outlets Um I'm, I'm lurking around other parts of the internet, but that, that's where I'm on the regular as well. Okay, right. So the boys we've seen, that's Connor's podcast. I'm going to give that one. You can follow him on Twitter at Study. so P-H-Y-S, capital C, S-T-U-D-Y. So mm-hmm. follow him there on Twitter and because he does amazing work. And that's where I got to hear, honestly, over the pandemic, got to hear you on podcasts and I'm not just saying this because you're on. I just went on Spotify. I typed in your name and I just went through so many different ones and I just started devouring them. So um, it, it, you do a great job, man. So thank you. Awesome. thank you. Thank yeah, you. I leave with my ego inflated. Thank you very much. <laughs> Absolutely. So everyone, for the great Dr. Connor Heffernan, I'm D-Rock. Thank you guys for listening to After Hour Sessions. Take care. Perfect.